good. I'd like to request your attention for some clarifications on our exercises. Um, First section of the Satipatthana teaching comprises six particular departments. Posture, mindfulness of breathing, the Sampajanya practices, practices on clear comprehension, which is the most famous ones, then three less famous ones, the Datuvavatana, the understanding or discerning the elements, which we will be touching into shortly, then the um, organ contemplations as a basis for working with the perception of the unbeautiful, and finally the charnel ground contemplations, which we will not visit, um, for reasons that uh, I don't want to go into right now. I'm interested in uh, fostering and facilitating a deepening of your relationship to breathing, the process of breathing, the understanding, the experience of breathing, of basically enabling a greater intimacy with the mind's capacity to gently and attentively relate to that breathing process. There is an immense transformative power in there. The breath is both a samatha object insofar as it is ideally suited to take the mind to greater stillness. Its particular frequency, its particular rhythm, its dynamic nature, the fact that it is relating to a body function that is so versatile, can be controlled and let, can be also let completely uh, uncontrolled or even unattended. And um, some of the stuff that our neurosciences are talking to us about, namely that if we attend to something on a felt level, that it has a much more stilling power than when we just observe it. Yeah. As those of you who've been here for a little longer will remember, I've um, tried to point out that the way we construe relationship, let's just assume sati is relationship to something inside or something outside, a process, an object, a situation. It's relating to something uh, or yeah, the thinginess seems to limit it already. We speak of meditation objects, but in fact we're not actually speaking of objects neatly defined and reified things. We speak of often dynamic things. And to attune to this, to go into an attuned embodied relationship is one of the tasks of sati. And that relationship can be construed in a number of ways. Generally we construe a relationship on the basis of one of our sense functions. Yeah? So we construe a relationship in analogy with either seeing or feeling, tasting, uh, smelling, touching. Yeah. So <clears throat> there's language that is suggestive of that relationship. So if we speak of uh, observing, of watching, of 
then we suggest that that relationship is a visual one. Yeah. We are using the ocular metaphor and our relationship to say the breath or to our own experience will be strongly influenced by visual metaphor. Now, as you know, our senses are quite different. You know? uh, sight is quite an aggressive sense. We can turn our heads, we can turn our eyes, we can close our eyes, we can squint, we can, uh, you know, we can do all kinds of things with our eyes, uh, which we couldn't with our ears. You know? Camels can close their ears when there's a sandstorm. Humans, most humans I know can't. You know, some can pretend quite convincingly to not hear. But usually I suspect this is not due to a fact that they can close their ears. It's more or less they close their hearing, which seems to be possible for humans. But we cannot do the same things with our ears as we can with our eyes. Correspondingly, when we relate to something in a relationship that is based on our notion of listening, then we are in a different place than when we relate to something that is based on our notion of seeing. Seeing always inflicts distance. We observe, we go into distance. We witness, we go into distance. We get perspective, we go into distance. Now, for some things that is really good. For things that are powerful, that have a lot of traction, that threaten to be overwhelming, being able to inflict a little distance can be quite attractive and even useful. But many things, if we just go into distance, is actually not useful. It's uh, problematic. We do not understand things. Some things, they don't need to be seen from a distance. Some things we actually need to approach. We need to touch into. We need to listen more deeply. We need to sniff out. Yeah? Some things we need to taste before we can understand them. So if we turn mindfulness practice or sati habitually into an activity of distancing observation, then our practice will be very one-sided. It's not that this is intrinsically bad, but it is just one facet of mindfulness practice. And it may be inadvertently so that we uh, train ourselves in something we may be already doing too much. There's good reasons for distancing. It creates safety. At the same time, it also creates aloofness. It creates um, (coughs) ineffectiveness. When I'm distant, I don't have much power. I don't have much, maybe, affective connection. And... I cannot really understand very closely if I just keep looking at things from a distance. Consider a relationship to a small child. It tries to call your attention. It doesn't want to be observed. It wants to be met in some real way. Fed, maybe. Played with. Touched. So, if we habitually respond to a call for attention with an observation, with an observing attention, with a witnessing, with a a distance-inflicting attention, then we get a very peculiar kind of relationship. One that is very observant, at the same time strangely removed. 
And the same is true, obviously, for our own experience. The same is true when we construe the notion of sati, the notion of mindfulness, even unquestionably and unconsciously, along the lines of the act of seeing. Now, if we are listeners, remember the Buddha's disciples were listeners. That's the name of their discipleship. We have savakas and we have savikas. That's the word for listening. So if you were a disciple of somebody, then you would go and listen to them. That's what defined your discipleship. You were willing to hearken, to kind of put yourself into a receiving, listening mode and let that in and associate on the basis of your listening rather than on your basis of your observation. The relationship of touch is even more strong. We touch a lot less far-reaching. If we touch, we have to be up closer a lot. If If we smell something, we're generally in it. If you want to smell what it smells like in your pot, you, know, you lift the lid and you have to actually get your nose in there somehow because the nose is really bad at long distance. Yeah? It's deep, old stuff. You know, sense of our olfactory center is embedded in our limbic system. This is an older part of our brain. That's why it's so difficult to get a reflective perspective on things that we smell. We have much better chance to get a reflective distance on things we see than on things we smell. They hit us in a much more immediate, deeper level of our being. Quite, um, you know, there's some evolutionary basis of this. Hunter-gatherers foraging around, you know, they need the sense of smell. One of the ways we identify things, whether things are edible or good or salubrious for us is definitely by the sense of smell. Now it has gone a little bit out of fashion, you know, in the course of evolution. We're doing a lot more with our eyes these days. But still, the physiological equipment is still geared that smells are pretty important. They hit us on a pretty visceral level, yeah, either liking or disliking. We can't stand somebody, we, I don't know, we say things like, I can't stand his guts, or in German you say, I can't, I can't stand his smell. Yeah. Which means basically, it's on such a visceral level, that it's really hard for me to go against this. So our language speaks of this. Now when we create a notion of what that relationship of mindfulness with our experience inside or outside is, let us be a bit careful that we don't just habitually default to seeing and distance infliction and perspective. Our language, particularly meditation teachers' language, is highly suggestive of the type of relationship we're encouraged to establish. Now, you, you know, this doesn't need to be declared instruction. It can be completely unconscious. It still works. It's like advertisement. Nobody believes advertisement. It still works. You don't need to believe it. You don't need to know how it works. It works beautifully. That's why some of our most creative and well-paid people are employed there. Not because we believe advertisement, but it doesn't need to be believed to be working. It's effective perfectly without believing. 
Now, the same holds true for our, how we construe our relationship to ourselves, to our mind, to our experience. If we continually try to make this a distance relationship by watching, observing, going back, taking the few, the famous retreat step back, disidentifying, looking at to gain perspective, then we end always in the periphery of ourselves. You know, we keep turning into witnesses of our own experience. And while this may be useful, even indispensable for particular experiences, anything that's big, threatening, flooding, for other experiences it's precisely unuseful, it's unhelpful. Some things I need to actually go up to, I need to touch into, I need to really get, I need to investigate. So the observing distance is not always the best position to actually learn something, meet something, engage with something. Consider this very simple example. The extreme situation with, this, with the sense of seeing is that I see something that does not see me. It's not necessarily a mutual relationship. Yeah? You can be in hiding as somebody who sees. You can be a voyeur, not being seen and yet seeing. Yeah? Now, you cannot do that on the sense of touch. If you construe a relationship on, on the basis of touch, then whatever you touch, touches you. So it's a much different relationship when you touch into something than when you just see it or observe it. It's necessary that we learn to, as we learn to shift our attentional focus from uh, channel four, where most of the story and the narrative goes, to say channel one, where the body uh, experiences sensations, as much I think it is necessary that we learn to reframe our particular relationship to ourselves by shifting through some of the analogies, sense analogies. So rather than just seeing the breath or seeing thoughts or seeing myself here acting out on my impulses, I can learn to relate to those in a very different way. Listening is a very good one. We're all good at listening to sounds. It's very nice sitting here, open, listening to birds. It's delightful here. Even the lawnmower the other day, I, I confess, I really enjoyed that. Yeah. There's kind of waves of sound just washing over you from all sides here. And, you know, if you think, oh, lawnmower, noise, mechanics, this is not nice. You know? But then actually the experience is something you can kind of just surrender to this. It <laughs> just washes over you from all sides here. It's still, there's kind of something delightful, isn't it? If you can... Just ride, ride it, it somehow struck me as delightful. So consider relating to things from other sensory channels. So my relation to this when I'm, when I'm in, a, in a, the, the level of touch. The other day we did this exercise, touching into physical sensation, from small sensation, then bigger sensation, then spaces of the body, then tonal sensations in the body. And then going outward, where does it stop? Can I feel my neighbor? Well, when I just feel. 
Am I aware of somebody else's presence in here? Does it feel different when I sit alone in here or when I sit with others? Just acknowledging that you are a feeler. That there's part of us, we're not just seers, we're also feelers. It's just that seeing is a lot more dominant than feeling. We have relegated feeling to to more intimate kind of things. When we sink into the bathtub, this is not a seeing experience. This is a full body immersion. We are contacted on all of the body surface at once. You don't get a particularized sort of wetness behind your left ear. You, You get a kind of you're probably never as much touched as when you immerse your body into something. That's why putting one's body into water for some people is such a magic experience. You, there's, you're really in it. Yeah. It's not something that you kind of can control in the way you can control, kind of gently putting your little thing, your finger onto something, or or looking at something very carefully. You know, this is. If you go immerse your body into something, that means you really, this is really touching you in a big way. You You can't really get much more cover (laughs) than, say, all of your skin being touched by water or a mud bath or whatever. So consider a little bit how you relate to what's happening inside and see whether you can shift some of your Consider what is your habitual analogy. Which sense is your habitual pattern of how you relate to yourself? Are you a feeler or are you more a listener? Some of us are more kind of listeners. It's people who just listen to things, listen to their breath, listen to their thoughts, listen to the world. Again, you know, there's no right and wrong in this. It's just for some things... Being able to see is very crucial. For other things, being able to touch is very crucial. Whenever we are habituated to one and one only default pattern, generally we're worse off than if we have some variety, if we have some choice, if we have some dexterity in using these choices. So I'd like you to ponder this, um, and maybe examples during our day. You know, there's a there's a world of smell. Some animals just live in a world of smell. I've spent quite some time living together with badgers in a little hut. And you kind of get quite uh, an idea how these guys live. You know, you get uh, some idea of their family lives. You you get an idea of um, what they they do with their young. Uh, You get an idea when they eat. You know, I've, I've fed a badger for quite a long time, whole retreat long. Guy was eating everything, you know, Cambodian food, Thai meat, Sri Lankan spicy dishes, everything. The only thing he didn't eat was stem celery. That's where he drew the line. But you could, you know, he was coming past every day at the end of my meditation path, and I would just, whatever I didn't eat, I'd leave out for him, and he would just polish off every day what I left there, I could say. I could know, dust falls, You know, within five minutes he's here. Within five minutes he was there polishing off the remainder of my Sri Lankan dana or my Thai meat dish, which I didn't eat, or apples really went down well. 
Everything with the exception of stem celery. Sri Lankan fish dishes, no problem. And wonderful, wonderful animal. And I realized this animal lives completely in a word of smell, you know. It's interesting, they can stumble into you in the forest because when their nose is down on the ground, when they're foraging, their one highly sensitized organ with which they orient is preoccupied. So they can literally stumble into your legs <laughs> when, they're, when they're preoccupied with forest. When they got their nose out, you know, they know that you're there a long time before you know they're there. Long before you hear them, they can smell you. They know when you have a visitor and they don't bring out the young because they're used to your smell but not to his smell. Yeah. So, considering how we live in a world of senses, for some of us, sights are very important, how things look. For others from us, we're into touch. You know, Every culture I know of has understood that women are more sensitive to cloth and things to touch, you know. That's the same in 500 years ago in Switzerland or in India or probably here. Every culture has understood that women have a particular appreciation, say, for fine cloth. It's not difficult to understand, you know. They have about the same amount of nerve endings generally in, in the size of a hand that is smaller, which makes them more sensitive, yeah. So, depending on which sense channel we operate in, our world can look quite different. I believe the world of a badger looks quite different, because his world is a world of smells. He follows his own track every night. He has a particular route where he goes and gets for food. You know, if the wheat is in ripe, he goes and loves the grain. If the grain is gone, you know, he's going back to the grubs. He, he has his pattern. But he doesn't see much. His hearing is not very impressive, yeah. I don't know what his touch is like, but I suspect the major organ is his nose. That's how he orients. If he wants to know what's happening, he takes a moment, stops, and then he, he makes these kind of snorting noises, he cleans his nose, and then he <laughs> sniffles, yeah. And it's what tells him what the world is like. His access to world is olfactory. Now, for us, this is probably a little different. Uh, I generally look, you know, what's going on, if I am startled by something. But I notice I use my hearing a lot. I judge daytime, I judge who's here, I judge, you know, a lot of things by just passive listening. So take a note how you relate to world based on senses. That's very crucial. That will also inform your relationship to your breath. Can you hear yourself breathing, for example? That's an interesting one. Instead of me feeling the breathing or me watching the breath, am I just a, a can I hear my breathing? What else do I hear? Is there a sound of silence somewhere in the background of my mind? Can I hear the silence that is punctuated by birdsong? Huh? So we don't just hear the sound, we actually hear what envelops the sound. There's many different ways we can use our senses to help us establish a relationship. So ponder this. Ponder your pattern. Ponder your unquestionable default and see whether you can vary a little bit, where you can expand, become more aware of other ways of relating, particularly to inner experience, 
so that we're not fixated in a sort of ocular gaze at ourselves, condemned to turn ourselves into ever vigilant observers of our experience at the same time, always at a distance. I have a few questions for you regarding breath. Um, um, Those of you here will have heard them. Um, Sometimes it helps to ask questions to understand particular qualities of experience best. Very simple questions. So, in regards to breath, I find following questions useful. If you ask yourself, uh, what is the lowest point on which you feel the movement of breathing? Just how deep does it go right now? None of these questions really have a definitive answer. None of these questions have a right answer, just to be clear. The purpose of these questions is that your relationship to breathing and everyday activity, which we're so used to having that it's sometimes difficult to pay attention to it because it's so common, so ubiquitous, so normal. The point of these questions is to deepen your intimacy with the process. So what is the lowest area in which I can actually feel the breathing? That would be such a question. Very simple. Next question would be, what is the rhythm of my breathing? Is my in and my out breath of equal length? That rhythm, as you know, will change. It's taken me many years to find out. It was quite embarrassed to find out many years that actually I don't use my nostrils in equal ways. You know, that the shift of which nostril is dominant uh, moves. There I've been doing Anapanasati for quite a number of years and I've never actually found out that my my nostrils are not working the same way. You could actually find out which nostril does more breathing right now, which is quite amazing. Um, Figure out whether this is the case for you. The yogi tradition insists this is the case, but I didn't know about the yogi tradition. I had to figure out that on my own and I was quite taken aback that something so obvious could have escaped my uh, all my anapanasati practice. You know, I was so preoccupied at feeling my breath somewhere else that a very simple feature of that process didn't become more obvious to me. Third question would be, what is the tone of that breathing? Yeah, what is the vitality? the buoyancy in that breathing. Sometimes the breathing seems to be uh, full of juice, full of energy, and sometimes the breathing seems to be flaccid and weak. So consider whether you find um, how much spring that breathing has, breathing movement, breathing process has for you. Another question is if you of a, a movement of breathing and sort of an in-breath and out-breath. How smooth is this an experience? Is this silky or is this jagged? Is this more sort of cat fur or is it more sort of stroking a concrete tube? Yeah. Is, is this a soft, smooth experience or is this sort of a raspy experience. Sometimes it's a mixture of both. You know, there's a very soft part and there's a little jag there. 
So consider whether the surface, the texture of your breathing is in some way something you can connect with or acknowledge. You don't need to do that permanently, but just acknowledge, ah, this is how it is now. And the last one would be, how much resistance does this body put up against the movement of breathing? Is it easy to breathe? Is it something that seems to come? Am I being almost filled with the breath? Am I being breathed? Or do I have to do a lot of sort of sucking in and pumping out and sucking in and pump out? How much resistance does this rib cage put up when the breath tries to widen it? How much do my tissues, my muscles need kind of almost muscular widening so that the breath can flow into the body? This varies, you know. If we have tension, then generally this seems to be harder work. So some of us may be finding that we're almost sighing with every breath, you know. We don't quite trust that the air will leave us. We need to somehow do it, you know. Some of us might find we're afraid that we don't get enough. We need to actually uh, almost accentuate the in-breath so as to make sure that we are oxygenated. Just consider, so the depth, the rhythm, the tone, the texture, the resistance. These are not things to make yourself crazy with. You just drop this question into the pond and you see whether it ripples. Some questions will resonate with this more than others. The point is not the question and the definitive answer. The point is that behind the question, there opens up a space of deeper relationship. Now see whether any of these help you to become more intimate with the process of breathing and correspondingly with your capacity to attend gently and softly to that process with a continued embodied awareness. Yeah, thank you. I wanted to respond to Sebani's request. Um, the Sampajanya part, as you remember, the uh, clear comprehension part. Um, I'll say more about this, but there is a little passage which describes how one establishes and exercises clear comprehension. And the example is very straightforward. And it says, how monks does a monk exercise clear comprehension? Um, here, monks, a monk understands feelings as they arise. They, he understands feelings as they remain present. He understands feelings as they pass away. Thoughts are understood as they arise. Thoughts are understood as they remain present. Thoughts are understood as they pass away. She understands perceptions as they arise. She understands perceptions as they remain present. She understands perceptions as they pass away. In this way, nuns, a nun understands and exercises clear comprehension. Very simple, straightforward. The terms are Vedana, here for feeling, 
They are vitaka for thought and they are sanya for perception. So terms as we would expect. Arising, <coughs> samudaya, this is also as would be expected. Remaining present, that's very interesting. Yeah? There's an acknowledgement that things, although impermanent and coming and going, they do spend some time remaining present. They're not inalterable while they remain present, but they do manifest being present for some time. And then they pass away, which the word in Pali, Abhata, means um, basically they go home. Yeah. So we understand when we ex exercise clear comprehension that things arise, that things remain present for a while, and that they go home, yeah? that they go under. So this is an interesting little passage that speaks of the exercise of clear comprehension. Technically, the old teachings here distinguish establishing the relation thing with the thing and knowing its features, namely arising, knowing its remaining present and knowing its going home. And they attribute that not to sati actually, but to the aspect of sampajanya, which is closely connected to the practice of sati. More on this later. Yeah. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.